Good evening once again and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing with the study that we've been doing, Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we're tracing the journey of Israel out of Egypt all the way into the Promised Land. And we've now come to part five of seven parts that we're breaking this down into. And if you are interested, uh, the notes and the recordings for all of these should be available at our website. That's new-life-ministries.org. And again, the title of this study is Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we've now come to part five, which is a rather, how shall we say, troubling part of the whole study. And this is about the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. We ended part four with them having spent almost an entire year at Mount Sinai. And they received the law, they received instructions from God on how to build the tabernacle, all of that took almost a year. The tabernacle was now complete, and the cloud of God's glory finally lifted and began to move, and they followed that cloud wherever it went. And so after almost a year at Mount Sinai, they finally began to move. However, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the journey from Mount Sinai into Canaan was a mere 11 day journey and I'm sure with great excitement they packed up and left Mount Sinai and they could already taste the grapes and they were already planning their new life in Canaan unfortunately it would not be until 40 years later that they actually crossed the River Jordan into the promised land and we began this section last week with the question, why? What happened? Why did they spend such a long period of time seemingly in limbo between Egypt and the Promised Land? Why did it take them so long? Well, we're looking at five purposes which God himself explains in his word as to why they spent this time in the wilderness. And one key portion of scripture we will read again tonight, found in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 5, lists most of those five reasons. And we'll go ahead and list them again. The reason they spent 40 years in the wilderness was, number one, to humble them. Number two, and this is what we're going to look at in more detail tonight, to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Number three, it was to teach them to live by the word of God. Number four, it was to discipline them. And fifthly, it was to remove unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. Let's read again. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 5, where you'll see a number of these things listed. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. This, of course, is after the 40 years are complete. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. This wasn't because they took a wrong turn. This was God leading them. Remember, the cloud directed them and led them from place to place in their journey. So God is the one that's leading them through all of these experiences. He led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now we saw last time that one of the main purposes for their desert experience, and this, of course, carrying it over into our New Testament experience, is exactly the same. It's to humble us. God knows how prone we are to pride, to boasting, to self-centeredness, self-exaltation. So the purpose of deserts, the purpose of the wilderness, is to break that pride, that human boasting. It was to humble them. And we looked at a number of scriptures last week where if after spending our time in whatever wilderness God leads us into, if we come out of that more broken, more humble, less likely to boast in ourselves, then it has definitely served its purpose. This is at the top of the list. The purpose of the wilderness was to humble them. We come to the second great reason or great purpose that God has in leading us into wilderness situations. And I want to keep emphasizing God led them into these experiences. God knows what kind of experiences you and I need to pass through to accomplish the work he needs to accomplish in our lives. Now, the second great purpose that was also listed here in Deuteronomy 8, it was to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So this is not your ordinary kind of an English or math exam that you might have dreaded when you were going to school. Uh, this is more of a spiritual kind of a test to find out what's in your heart. And 
The Hebrew word translated test here means to test, to assay, to prove, or to try. You may not be familiar with that word assay, but it's a term that's often used in the context of analyzing or testing metals to determine their composition and their purity, even to determine their strength. So an assay is a very specific kind of a test. It often involves a lot of chemical testing and whatnot to find out the actual composition of a material. Interesting that God uses that word here. He wants to find out, if you will, the composition of our heart. What is the makeup of our heart? And one of the meanings of that term assay is to find out the purity. How pure is the gold? How pure is the silver? How pure is whatever metal it is that we're testing? So God tested them to know, to prove, to try, to assay their hearts in order to know what was in their heart. Now that word to know um, literally means to ascertain by seeing. In other words, it's not just the idea of knowing a fact, but it includes the idea of making it known. So it would also encompass the idea of showing or discovering, discerning. God knows everything. There's nothing about the Israelites that he didn't know, and there's nothing about you or me that he doesn't already know. This seems to convey more the idea to make known. He tested you in order to make known or to reveal what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So, the purpose of the wilderness, in many cases, is to reveal to us what's inside of us. God already knows it, but he wants to know it. He wants to make it known through seeing. He wants us to actually see what's inside of us. He wants to discover what's inside of our hearts. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you'll understand that there are things about us that we don't know until God discovers them for us. We may have thought we were pretty good people, pretty honest. Uh, we may have prided ourselves on being, you know, a person of integrity or whatnot until God starts to discover things or uncover things that are hidden in our hearts. The Bible doesn't lie. It says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Well, God can. God can know our heart, 
And one of the purposes of tests and trials is to make openly known what was always in our heart, but he engineers situations to reveal that, to discover that. There's a quotation that I learned years ago that has always blessed me. It goes something like this, Christians are like tea bags. We discover our true flavor only when we are put in hot water. <laughs> so God engineers hot water situations, and then it reveals our true character. Not who we thought we were, but who we really are. Now, coming back to the Israelites, God said he tested them in order to know what was in their heart, and then it says specifically whether or not you would keep his commands. So one important area that they're going to be tested in is their obedience. Will they follow simple commands that God gives them? Well, they didn't do very well from the start. And in Exodus 16, one of the first tests God gave them was concerning the Sabbath, and more specifically, it was concerning the gathering of the manna. And you'll remember, the manna was their wilderness food. It was bread from heaven. It came down six days a week. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there was no manna. Because God didn't want them to work on the Sabbath, so they were not to go out and gather manna on the Sabbath. They were to gather a two-day's supply on the sixth day, and that would tide them over until the beginning of the new week. Let's read a little bit about this in Exodus chapter 16, and keep in mind that this is part of God's testing them in order to know what's in their heart, whether or not they will keep his commands. Exodus 16 Let's read, firstly, verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. Note those words. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. You know, it's amazing as a teacher how often you find students not following instructions. doesn't matter how many times you repeat them, you write them on the board, you scream and yell them, instructions for some reason still don't get followed. And it's often to the hurt and detriment of the student. 
It's amazing how important it is in life for us to learn how to follow instructions. And certainly when they're instructions given by God. I'm reminded of a true story of something that happened some years ago. Um, while I was teaching, one of the aides in our school was going to college, and he had just come from his final exam in biology, I believe it was, and the exam was this big, thick booklet, like 20-plus pages and Everybody just freaked out when they saw the size of this exam. And fortunately, this young man had learned to read and to follow instructions because the professor was testing them not so much on their biology skills as on whether or not they were reading and following instructions. Because on the first page of the exam... It said very clearly, this is a test to see if you will follow instructions or not. Do not answer any of the questions in this exam. Sign your name and turn it in without doing any of the questions. <laughs> well, some of the students were there for more than two hours sweating and answering all these questions about DNA and ATP and the digestive system, when all they had to do, had they read the instructions, was sign their name and turn the test in. It's amazing sometimes how things will go well for us if we read and follow instructions. Well, even in a simple thing like gathering manna six days a week, and not gathering it on the Sabbath, God was testing them. Let me read again what he says here. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Jumping down in Exodus 16 to verse 13. It says, that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? It's interesting in the Hebrew, what is it is the word manna. So, manna means, what is it? So, they didn't know what this stuff was, and so they asked, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did
did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. So far, so good. Everything's working out real well. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. Simple commandment. However, some of them paid no attention. Mark those words. Paid no attention. They paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered in as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. So, supernaturally, God, knowing that they were going to be taking the day off on the Sabbath, he doubles the supply. This is important for us to understand because there's a, there's a larger principle here that I'll touch on in a minute. But this is a miracle. It's all a miracle, the fact that bread is coming down from heaven every morning. But it's a double miracle in that on the sixth day, God is encouraging them to trust him and to follow his instructions, which were gather on the sixth day, don't gather on the seventh. So reading this again, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning. Couldn't do that on the other six mornings, but this morning is different. You can save it, and it won't stink and it won't breed maggots. Verse 24 again. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Guess what? Some of them didn't follow instructions. Verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? By the way, notice that the Lord chides Moses. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Well, it wasn't Moses personally, but he's getting the blame because some of the people are 
being disobedient. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the Sabbath day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. The Lord tested them to see whether or not they would follow his instructions. Simple instructions, not complicated. Work on six days, rest on the seventh. Gather manna six days, don't gather it on the seventh because there won't be any. You'll get a double supply on the sixth day. You'll be able to keep that for the seventh day. Other days, you won't be able to keep any extra. It'll stink, and it'll breed maggots. Whatever instructions God gave them, there were some of them that insisted on not keeping his commands, not following his instructions. This is the purpose of tests. God made this very clear. It was to test you in order to know what was in your heart, or as we've been stating, to make known, to reveal what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Well, he's already revealed that there are certain ones in the Israelite camp that just seem to have a problem with obedience. They're rebels. They always like to do things their own way, contrary to whatever instructions or commandments are being given. And remember, the purpose of the wilderness was to humble you and to test you. Those two work hand in hand. And generally speaking, these ones who were refusing to follow God's instructions, it's because they were proud. They had a better way. They knew better. They had better ideas. They thought, well, we can get extra manna if we go out on the seventh day. There wasn't any manna on the seventh day. They thought, we can gather extra Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and keep it for the next day. Then we won't have to get up early tomorrow morning to gather manna. No, didn't work that way. It stank and it bred maggots. So, they were tested in a simple commandment, and some of them didn't pass the test. This thing of gathering the manna uh, was a very important part of Israel's whole experience. And it's described later on in the book of Psalms, Psalm 78, verses 23 to 25, it says, yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. Some of the Bibles say angels' food. That's where we get angels' food cake, by the way. Well, that's where they get the name. It wasn't angels' food cake. But... 
This was angels' food, bread of angels. He sent them food, but there was also a test involved in the gathering and the preparation of that food. On another occasion, and this was also connected with the Sabbath, a man failed the test. It's described in Numbers chapter 15. A man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Well, didn't go well for him. He was stoned to death. So, as God gave them these commands remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, etc., God was now going to test to see whether or not they would be obedient in those commandments. Matter of fact, going all the way back to Mount Sinai, when Moses came down with the two tablets of the law, and not only did Moses have the law on those tablets, but God audibly spoke the Ten Commandments to them in Exodus chapter 20. And I think it's important for us to look at this again. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1, And God spoke all these words. This isn't the engraved law on the two tablets. This is now God talking to the Israelites. And God spoke all these words. And if you keep reading... Uh, in Exodus 20, it goes through all ten of the commandments. We're not going to read those again. But dropping further down, after God finishes speaking the ten commandments to them, in verse 18, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Follow this carefully, because this is very important. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, God has come to test you. Same Hebrew word that was found in Deuteronomy 8. God has come to test you, to prove you, to assay you, to find out the purity of the metal, to find out the composition of your heart. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I would maintain that here, already, they had failed a very important test. God was testing to see whether or not they would listen to his voice and obey his voice. He's actually speaking to them now, and they're saying, we don't want God to speak to us. Do not have God speak to us. Moses, you just be our translator. 
You go up in the mountain, you talk to God, you find out what he wants to say, and then you come and relay the messages to us. But we don't want God talking to us anymore. If he does, we will die. Do not be afraid, Moses says. God has come to test you. They failed it. They failed the test. They didn't want God talking to them. And sadly, from Mount Sinai on, with each successive test, God made known what was in their hearts. He discovered what was inside of them. And it wasn't pretty. He discovered disobedience, rebellion, unwillingness, unbelief, and fear. And we find in the New Testament, and we're not going to get into depth on this, but Paul goes into great lengths explaining this in Romans and Galatians and other places. The whole purpose for the law was to reveal how sinful man was. The purpose of the law was not to make them righteous. Quite the contrary. It was to stir up sin, and it was to reveal, to manifest what was inside of them, which was sin, unbelief, and rebellion. So the, the, the law, the commands were given to test them, and God knew the results of the test were not going to be very positive. Now, let's bring this over into the New Testament. We also get tested. There's quite a lot in the New Testament on this subject of tests, trials, and being proven. When we come to Christ and we put our trust in Him, our sins are washed away, we become a new creation in Christ, born again, born of water, born of the Spirit. Um, we are flying high. We're ready to go in to the promised land. We're more than conquerors through Christ. We're ready to obtain all of our inheritance. And God says, mm, not so fast. We need to test a few things first. And in First Peter, Peter, by no coincidence, was the apostle that God chose to write extensively about trials, tests, and sufferings in the life of the Christian. Remember, it was Peter who told Jesus, No, 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 don't go to the cross. You don't need to go to the cross. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Wow. You're more concerned with the things of men than you are the things of God. Well, apparently, much later in his life, when Peter is writing these epistles, he got the revelation. He understood the need and the importance of sufferings and trials in the life of every child of God. 1 Peter 1, very well-known portion of Scripture, which we often read rather grimacingly, but 
let's let's examine this a little bit more carefully tonight in light of what we just saw with the Israelites in the Old Testament. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Remember, one of the meanings of this word test is to prove or to assay, to test the composition and the purity of a metal. It seems that Peter has that concept in mind when he's writing this, because he's comparing our faith to the metal gold. And it has to be tested, assayed. It has to be proven to see whether or not it is genuine. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there is a mineral called fool's gold. It's not anything like gold, but if you don't know too much about real gold, you could be fooled. It has a bright, golden, shiny luster, and to the untrained eye, it looks kind of like gold. Well, it's called fool's gold because many an unsuspecting person has been duped by people selling this as gold when, in fact, it's just a cheap, common mineral that you can even find locally here in Maryland. Fool's gold is not anything like real gold, and several simple tests or assays can immediately prove that what you've got in your hands is not real gold. It's the fake stuff. Pyrite is the name of the mineral. Well, Peter says your faith has to go through tests. It has to go through some tests, some trials, to prove its genuineness. I like that translation. The proven genuineness of your faith. We can say, oh Lord, you know how genuine my faith is. I'm going to trust you. Well, Peter did that, didn't he? Lord, I'll never deny you. Yeah, right, Peter. You're going to deny me three times in one night before the cock crows. It wasn't genuine. It was a bunch of hot air. But later on, God has done a work in Peter's life. And his faith is now so genuine that history would tell us that he finally gave his life for the cause of Christ. He really did lay down his life for his Savior, 
and most historians say he was crucified upside down on a cross. So, Peter understands the importance of things being tested, things being tried or proven to reveal their genuineness, their purity, the sincerity, if you will, of their composition. Let me read this again. Though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There are all kinds of trials. And I've been doing this for 40 years now, and some of you on the phone have also been with the Lord for many years. I'm sure you can also attest to this. God has quite an amazing repertoire of different kinds of trials and tests. He knows just the right situation to engineer to prove the genuineness of our faith. And, in some cases, it may prove that it's not genuine. It may prove that there's a lot of fake faith in our life, and we got some growing to do, we got some work to do. But that's okay. Peter had grown in his spiritual experience to such a place that he's now an authority on trials and the importance of trials. So much so, he says, if you're in one of them now, rejoice greatly. Rejoice, because God is doing a work in your life through that trial. And it's your opportunity to prove the genuineness of your faith to God. It's your opportunity to prove the genuineness of your faith. I mean, if everything's just going well, if we're having a cakewalk, then it's hard to prove the genuineness of our faith. But if you're going through a situation similar to what Job went through, well, Job had ample opportunity to prove the genuineness of his faith, because this was the great challenge. He didn't know about it, but it was the great challenge that Satan brought before the Lord. Look how you bless this guy. You take all this stuff away from him, and he'll curse you to your face. Well, God allowed Satan to take certain things away from Job, and Job maintained his integrity. He proved the genuineness of his faith. And when you do that, Peter goes on to say, this is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire. So trials, tests, they are the refining fire that, proves the genuineness, the purity of the metal. In this case, the gold is our faith. He talks about this again in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to what? To test you as though something strange were happening to you. Generally speaking, when God brings a test or a trial into your life, your first reaction is, this is strange. Why is this happening to me? And, you know, why isn't always the best question to begin asking. We can go on and on. Why, 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 why this? Why did this happen? Why that? A better question might be, what? What is it that you want to say to me, Lord? What is it that you're trying to teach me? What is it that you're trying to work into my life? God may not always answer our why questions. That gets more to the heart of his purpose. And he's already told us the purpose in general for trials. It's to prove us. To prove our genuineness. And so, don't think it strange when something strange happens to you. That's basically what Peter's saying. Do not be surprised when a fiery or a strange trial comes your way. It has come to test you. So don't ask why. You already know why. It has come to test you, to prove you, to know you, to reveal what is inside of you. And so it's giving you an opportunity now to A, follow God's instructions, and B, prove to Him and to others around you the genuineness of your faith. James has a few things to say about trials and tests also. Another well-known and often quoted passage, James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. And he also says the same thing that Peter says about trials. Rejoice when you're in one. I know that's not our natural inclination. It's to moan and groan and cry and question and throw a hissy fit and temper tantrums. But he says it'll go better for you if you just start rejoicing. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James also has found out that there are many kinds of trials. God will not use the same trial this year that he used last year. He's not bound to two or three trials. He has a whole book he can invent brand new situations, many kinds of trials. But, if God is investing the time and energy into creating a trial for you, then it means He loves you. 
And that's cause right then and there for us to begin to rejoice. God loves me enough that he's engineered this situation to try me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Here it is again. What is it that's being tested here? It's the faith. Faith is being tested. And as faith is tested, it results in something. It produces perseverance. Perseverance is that quality of character, I call it grit. You're not going to give up. You're not going to quit. You're not going to cave in. You're going to keep on keeping on. You're going to keep pressing on. Even when things get tough, you keep on going. That's perseverance. It's basically, this is a one-way street. There's no turning back, so I can only keep pressing on. And it may take some real pressing right now. I may be swimming against the current. I may be climbing a steep mountain or hill, but I'm not turning back. That's not an option. So this test is going to produce perseverance endurance. I'm going to keep going on with God. Drop down to verse 12 in the same chapter, James 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Notice that. Perseveres under trial because having stood the test. Apparently, one of the great ways to pass a test is just to remain standing in it. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't go back. Just stand. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I I forget whose motto it is, but I still see the bumper sticker sometimes on people's uh, cars. And it blesses me. It says, go hard or go home. (laughs) Go hard or go home. God never said this business of being a Christian was going to be easy. It's going to be hard sometimes. If you're looking for the easy way, then go home. You're not going to make it if you're looking for an easy way. There are going to be trials, many of them, many kinds of trials, and they're going to produce perseverance. You can tell a seasoned veteran Christian who's been through some battles, some prisons, and some deserts. They may have some scars. They may have a few marks on them. Uh, They may even have a limp. (laughs) But you can tell they've made up their mind, I am not quitting. I am not 
turning back. I've come too far now. I want to keep going on with the Lord. And whatever this present test is, I'm going to stand the test, so help me God. And if the testing of my faith is necessary to produce more perseverance, then so be it. Meanwhile, I'm going to try to follow Peter and James's counsel. Keep rejoicing while you're in it. Greatly rejoice. Consider it pure joy that you're in a trial because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You know, there are a number of passages in Paul's letters where he also talks about testing, but he talks in a little bit of a different way. He's not so much talking about God's tests in our lives, as Peter and James were, he's talking about tests that he was giving to the churches, tests that were being given to certain people, perhaps, who were aspiring to leadership in the church. And, I mean, we're all familiar with the fact that in society you have to pass certain tests to be able to do certain things. If you want to be a lawyer, you got to take the bar exam. If you want to be a doctor, you got to take all the medical exams. If you want to be a plumber, you got to pass certain tests. Every occupation, every profession has a certain standard that it expects anyone to meet who's going to be in that profession. And so you have to study, you have to learn certain things, you have to practice certain skills, and then ultimately you take a test. you got to take a test to be able to drive a car. I'm reminded of a painful experience. After driving for decades, when we moved from Maryland to Ohio, uh, you know, you get the little booklet with all the state laws, and you have to study the booklet, and then the day comes for you to go take the written test. And my wife and I went on the same day, and in my arrogance, I thought, come on, I've been driving since I was 16 years old. I don't need to read this stupid book. I can pass this test with flying colors. Well... We get to the uh, MVA there, and the written test is all taken on a computer. And my wife zipped right through hers and got almost every question right. And she's already passed, and she's up there at the counter with the uh, officer, and they're all sweating and watching me almost fail this exam. And I came down to the last question on the test. Had I failed that question, I failed the exam. (laughs) And thankfully I got that last question right, and I barely passed the test and got my driver's license in Ohio. Well, uh, that was a rather humbling day, to say the least. But you got to pass tests, even to be able to drive a car, operate a machine, be in a profession. Well, Paul gave certain tests 
to the churches to see whether or not they would follow his instructions, to see whether or not they would follow certain apostolic orders that he was giving to these churches. In one such case, it dealt with the Corinthian church. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 5, they had a horrendous situation of immorality um, beyond anything that you would normally expect in a church. And they were tolerating this particular situation. And Paul was furious with the Corinthians. He wrote back to them and said, I don't need to be there to deal with this. Put this man out of the church. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. Well, in 2 Corinthians, he addresses that situation. And here's what he has to say about it. 2 Corinthians 2, starting with verse 9, and you can read the whole uh, second chapter of 2 Corinthians to get the context here. But in verse 9 he says, Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. What was the test? Whether or not they would obey Paul. Well, what did he tell them to do? Put the man out of the church. He's living in sin. He's living in adultery. Put him out. Well, apparently they stood the test. They finally humbled themselves and obeyed what Paul was telling them to do. So he writes back to them, and he praises them. You stood the test, and you were obedient in everything. Sometimes tests don't just come from God. God uses different people to test us. And he, he carries this theme throughout 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at just two other places, but there are others as well. In 2 Corinthians 8, he gives an extensive teaching and exhortation on what I call the grace of giving. He's not teaching them about tithing. I don't like to talk about tithing. Tithing is Old Testament. He's talking to them about giving. But follow carefully what he says to them. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 and 8. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. See that you excel in this grace of giving. Verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. One thing Paul does in his letters, he compares different churches. And he'll write to one church and say, 
Well, you didn't help me, but the Philippians did. None of you were there to help me in my, in my time of need, but the Thessalonians came through. So now he's really putting it to them. He says, I'm not going to give you a command. I want to test you to see if your love is sincere. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. If you study this whole chapter, you'll see clearly he's talking about them giving financially. This was the test he's talking about, to test the sincerity of your love. You may say, oh, pastor, God knows how much I love him. I don't have to prove how much I love him by how much money I drop in the offering plate. Okay, fine. I'm not going to argue with that. But Paul says, I want some proof here. I don't want just talk. And I'm not going to command you. I want this to be from your own hearts because he goes on to say, God loves a cheerful and a willing giver. Not somebody who does it under compulsion. But understand, this is a test and it's your opportunity to prove the sincerity of your love. Look at another one while we're here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 to 7. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, this is a little different. God tests us to reveal what's in us. But as we grow and mature, there's a time and a place for us to examine and test ourselves. I'm a firm believer in, from time to time, taking a spiritual inventory of yourself. Just sit down, take some time, maybe fast and pray, spend a day alone with the Lord, examine yourself, and ask some hard questions. How am I really doing in my walk with the Lord? How's my faith doing? How is my obedience? Am I growing in the Lord? Am I growing in my faith? Am I using the gifts and the talents that God has given me? Am I reaching other people with the gospel? Is my life impacting other people the way I want it to? Or is there room for improvement? And I think if you're honest, you'll always find that there's room for improvement. Test yourselves, Paul says. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. So, 
The spiritual life is full of all kinds of tests. God tests us. Our leaders sometimes test us. And ultimately, we need to learn how to test ourselves. Am I passing the test or did I fail the test? How did I do this week? How did I do today? There were certain tests that God put into my life. Did I come through with flying colors, or am I likely going to need to repeat the test? You know, if you fail your driver's test, you have to repeat it, and repeat it, and repeat it. But don't give up. Keep taking it until you finally pass it. Likewise, maybe there's a spiritual test that you failed ten times, maybe a hundred times. Fine. Pass it on the hundred and first time. But you're going to keep taking it until you pass it. Don't fail it. Finally, and this is our last verse for the night, and I'm going to end here. In 1 Timothy 3, this is a concept that I think churches need to understand more clearly. Those who are placed in leadership positions have to first be tested. I'm not talking about giving a five- or ten-page written exam. I have been very saddened by many, many situations that I've dealt with in churches over the years where because somebody sings well, or they're wealthy, or they were famous in the world, they get saved, and within two weeks they're put into some uh, leadership position. They're in charge of discipleship, or they're in charge of the worship team, or they're made to be the associate pastor, or elder, or deacon, or some nonsense. Well, we ought to follow what Paul instructs Timothy on this matter. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 10. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. He goes on to talk about those who would be elders or pastors, leaders and overseers of churches. How much more... They also need to be tested first, if even the deacons must first be tested. See, churches have gotten into a lot of messes that could have been avoided had they followed this simple instruction that Paul gives. If we first test people before putting them into positions of leadership, we can avoid a lot of problems. And... He goes on to talk about how if a novice, a new believer, is placed into these positions of leadership, they will fall. They will definitely fall through pride, and they will fall into the condemnation of the devil, Paul writes. So, testings come from God. Testings come from our leaders. Sometimes... We have to test ourselves. And in closing, I'm reminded of another true story 
of a young man that I worked with years ago, and he had taken, I believe it was his first part-time job at a drugstore. And he was the closer. He had to stay until closing time, lock up the doors, uh, empty all of the money out of the cash register, count up all the money, and make sure that it matched uh, with the receipt from the cash register. Well, one of his first nights on the job, he counted up all the money, and he compared it with the cash register, and he did it three or four times because every time he was coming out $20 extra. He had $20 extra in the cash register that he could not account for. And he knows he's new on the job, and this is not going to look well if on one of his first days, it may have even been his first day, I can't remember, but I think it was, on his first day, he's already made a mistake of $20. Maybe he didn't give enough change back or something. It's not going to look good. So naturally, the devil's there whispering in his ear, keep it. Just pocket the $20, and you come out perfectly even. Everything balances. The boss will be happy. But thank God, he was a young man of integrity and honesty, and he went to his boss the very next morning. He said, boss, I don't know what happened. I double-checked the money in the register three or four times. Every time I did it, I came out $20 over. So there's $20 extra for some reason in the register. And he's like getting ready for the boss to scream and say, you're fired. You can't even, you know, keep track of your money. The boss got a big smile on his face. He reached out his hand and he said, Congratulations, son. You've just received a promotion. He's like, What? He said, Yeah, I put that $20 extra in there to test you. <laughs> you passed the test. Congratulations. You know, we never know who is testing us. We never know how we're being tested. And the bottom line is, if we're a man or a woman of integrity, if we're honest, if it doesn't matter whether people are watching us or not, we're walking with the Lord, and we know that ultimately God's eyes are seeing everything that we're doing, and He is revealing, making known what's in our hearts if our sincere desire is to prove to God the genuineness of our faith, the sincerity of of our devotion to Him, to prove our willingness to obey Him and to follow His every command and His every instruction, then things are going to go well for us. And we will pass these tests. Again, I'm not going to say we're going to pass every test with flying colors the first time around. Peter didn't. He failed miserably. But he came back and he kept trying he kept pressing on, and he finally was able to stand the test. God tested them to know what was in their heart, whether or not 
they would keep his commands. Let's pray tonight that in whatever situations we find ourselves, we might be able to prove the genuineness of our faith and our love for the Lord. Father, you've told us tonight that we are to greatly rejoice, even when we're in strange trials, strange sufferings that bring grief and disappointment into our lives. You said, nevertheless, to greatly rejoice because something is happening. Our faith is being refined. Perseverance is being produced in our lives. And our faith is becoming refined, pure gold. Lord, encourage each and every one on this Bible study line tonight to keep pressing on, to keep trusting in you. And Lord, maybe we failed the test today or yesterday, but you'll give us another chance, and we will ultimately pass those tests because of your grace in our lives. Father, bless each and every one tonight. Keep us faithful. Keep us true. Keep us genuine and sincere until the day of Christ's return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.